morning, everyone. I think we're going to go ahead and get started with our first 11th hour lecture of the week. Welcome back, or welcome, if you've just come this week. My name is Rachel Yoder, and I curate the 11th hour lecture series. Um, we had a great week of lectures last week, and I'm looking forward um, to new ones this week. Speaking of, you may have gotten a schedule for last week's lectures in your packet. Um, there are updated schedules for this week by the back door, so please grab one on your way out so you have the correct information. I would also ask that you kindly turn off your cell phones. Thank you very much. All right, let's get to it. So today we have Eric Goodman, who lives in upstate New York and Sonoma and has the life we all want. Uh, he was the longtime director of the creative writing program at Miami University and is now happily retired. He has published over 150 articles and essays in venues such as GQ and the LA Times, in addition to five novels. He has a new book coming out in spring 2020. You're going to want to write this down and pre-order it when it's ready. It's called Cuppy and Stew. He's going to talk about it a little bit in his lecture today, so you'll find out a little bit more. His work has been supported by three Ohio Arts Council fellowships, as well as residencies at the Headland Center for the Arts, Ragdale, and the McDowell Colony. Today, Eric will present the lecture, Transforming Life into Writing, which will address how we span that distance between real life and the written page. Please join me in welcoming Eric Goodman. Thank you, Rachel. Better. And um, thank you all for coming out. I know it's partially um, that you don't have that much to do yet, because it's Monday rather than Wednesday or Thursday. But, so, but I'm going to get uh, into this. And um, the talk, indeed, I'm not Zach if you have last week's schedule. Uh, the talk is entitled Transforming Life into Writing, uh, which is in itself a transformation of an Elevenses lecture I delivered here almost exactly nine years ago on June 15th, 2010, although only the first of the three parts of this talk uh, did I address then. Okay, so part one uh, is life transformed until you're not sure what is true. Transforming life into writing is an individual process, as individual as the writing we each struggle to produce. What I'm going to describe for the next some minutes is an individual take on an age-old problem, a puzzlement, as King Moncout explained in The King and I. What some would suggest is the quintessential problem faced by all artists, literary and otherwise, the relation of the artist to her materials, or in the case of the king, famously portrayed by Yul Brenner, the relationship between just the facts, ma'am, and what happens to those immutable facts when we include them in our work. In the words of the king, there are times I almost think I am not sure of what I absolutely know. 
that in my head are many facts I have studied to procure. In my head are many facts of which I wish I was more certain I was sure. For writers, blurring the facts until you're not sure what is true is an essential part of transforming life into writing and its various aspects of that process that I'll discuss today. I'd like to discuss and suggest that this process changes or ought to change over time. At least it has for me, in part, I think, because the life I was attempting to transform into writing has changed over time. As a young writer, nothing much of interest had happened to me, or so it seemed to me then. Youngest son of a stable middle-class family, no bizarre illnesses, parents who were childhood sweethearts and would remain married for 66 years. Oh man, I might have said, how could you do this to me, mom and dad? Don't you understand I'm trying to be a writer? As a result of this lack of juicy material for which I entirely blame my parents, and for those of you who are striving or have striven to provide your children with a secure, loving childhood, beware. You never know what you're going to be blamed for. I was forced to make things up or to write about other people's lives. I was unprepared, as it were, to transform my own life into writing because I didn't think there was anything worth transforming. I learned to form psychic connections with my characters who were often based on or inspired by people I knew, people who had had something happen to them. I think it's fair to say that in my first three published novels, very little of the life that was being transformed was my life. Instead, I'd imagine myself into the lives of my characters because I had a background in journalism, I'd sometimes actually do some of the things, that is, live some of the life my characters and the real life inspiration for those characters had actually done. Thus, in my first novel, which was inspired by a guy I knew in college who ran naked across the Brooklyn Bridge one night and got arrested, I ran across the Brooklyn Bridge with my clothes on, imagining what doing it naked would be like. And when I decided that this character would go to look for the grandfather he never knew on a farm in western Kansas, I actually went to a farm in western Kansas. This method, which was all compensation for how hard done by I was by my parents, left me ill-prepared to transform my life into writing. The one time I tried early in my career was a disaster. Right after college, I dropped out of law school in New York City to revise my undergraduate novel, which fortunately was never published. Some of you may have that novel somewhere. It was early January and I was moving back up to where I'd gone to college to finish writing and producing a rock musical with my college songwriting partner. It was uh, cold. I came out of my apartment to my rusting 1967 Catalina, and although this was in the mid to late 70s, uh, a couple came up to me on the street as I was getting into my car and asked if they could hitch a ride downtown. An African-American couple, in fact, and this is a racially tense neighborhood, and a racially tense time, 
And although I'd grown up on the streets of New York and rode the subway to high school and was pretty, had street smarts, I said, sure, why don't you get in the car? Now, I knew what was going to happen. Um, and we began driving down Broadway. Um, and they were actually very nice people. The man you know, was on the, next to the passenger door. The woman was in the middle. He said, um, you know, I guess you've heard about all the city layoffs. I just recently lost my job. And I said, which was true, I'm unemployed. And he then later said, well, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm moving someone. I was moving someone into my apartment so I could go off on this writer's life I dreamed of. And he said, God, I wish I could get a job moving someone. And I said, I'm not getting paid. So we drive down Broadway. For those of you who know New York City, we get into the, into the upper 70s. I turn on to the side street where my friend is in front of the apartment. There I'm going to pick him up and his things in my rusty 67 Catalina. I pull over just past where um, he was standing. And the man says, would you please pull over a little bit more because I'm blocking traffic. So I'm thinking to myself, all right, get on with it already, would you? So I pull over a little bit further. He pulls out a gun and says, give me your money. And I've been waiting for this. I know that this is going to happen. He doesn't know that I know this is going to happen. I say, OK, you know, fine. I'm going to reach into my pocket now. I get my wallet, but you know, I, as was my want back then and for many years after, I have $4 in my wallet. So I say, here, I have $4. And he says, keep it, grabs her and jumps out of the car and runs off. Now, <clears throat> sometime thereafter, um, I tried to turn that into a short story. And I could never do it. What I couldn't change or transform was what that story meant. I tried to write it. It never worked. It laid there on the page like a bad smell in a room with closed windows. It lay there, in fact, like something that had already happened, like something that, instead of being life transformed, had had all the life sucked out of it. Years later, I would understand that I hadn't lied enough. I hadn't embellished. I hadn't made enough things up. So my first piece of advice is lie. You are not a reporter. Lie. Make things up. Never be bound by what really happened if it doesn't make a good story. This failed attempt to transform my own life into writing made me feel inadequate. Because by then, I'd come upon the famous quote by Flannery O'Connor. Anyone who has survived childhood has enough information about life to last him the rest of his days. Which I took to mean that just because nothing has happened to you directly worth writing about doesn't mean you have nothing to write about. My pal Jim Heinen says that Garcia Marquez, the author of A Hundred Years of Solitude, said, I'd never written about anything that I didn't experience before the age of eight. Is that true? I don't know. I couldn't find it online, and Heinen is notorious for making things up. 
But I did find this online from the Paris Review. In journalism, said Garcia Marquez, just one fact that is false prejudices the entire work. In contrast, in fiction, one single fact that is true gives legitimacy to the entire work. That's the only difference, and it lies in the commitment of the writer. A novelist can do anything he wants so long as he makes people believe in it. I think that's very good advice. You have to have the conviction about what you're writing about that it could be true even if you've transformed it. I'd also learned early on, despite being advised by more than one wise old editor to write about what I knew about. But I'd learned that Sol Bellow, an early uh, hero of mine, but not so much now, had written Henderson the Rain King, a novel about traveling all around Africa without having set foot on that continent. So it was clear that you didn't have to write about what you knew, yet I still wanted to. It seemed to me that I should be able to. And this is what I thought in my 20s. But then I was no longer in my 20s or even my 30s, and things began to happen in my life that began to seem worth writing about. So my second piece of advice about transforming life into writing is to live a little. If at all possible, don't die. <laughs> Let time go by. For life to be transformed into writing, experience needs to breathe a little. There's a reason that people in their early 20s rarely write great memoirs, or great novels for that matter, and it's not because there's been nothing dramatic or worth writing about in their lives. It's because the alchemy that transforms life into writing takes time. Like wine or cheese, you're not blogging life into writing, you're transforming it. And so to summarize part one of my talk, lie, make things up. Two, embellish, change details, assign the event or memory to someone that's not you if it happened to you, or to a character other than the one who had the experience in question. In analysis, they call this transference. In creative writing, we call it making stuff up. And three, let the truth settle and fade so that you can find what creative nonfiction writers call the larger truth in what you are writing. Transforming life into writing takes time. Often it's about new combinations. I believe that's because if you can find the meaning of the event in the actual event too easily, it's likely to lie there on the page like a dog that won't be awakened. But if you can take a little of this, a little of that, and shake it all up and let them ferment, you'll be amazed at what you can create. Sometimes I think Transforming life into writing is like remembering your dreams, in which names and faces and what really happened is wildly disordered, and you were tap dancing on a cruise ship instead of going to med school. Yet it all makes perfect sense, everything strange and unfamiliar, yet somehow the story of your life.
Part two, is it fiction or memoir? I'd like to address an issue that many of my students over the years have struggled with, fiction or memoir, essay or short story. What's the best and proper use of the life material you've been given? As some of you may know, because I've spoken about it or even read a snippet or two from this book over the past few years, I spent quite a bit of time working on a manuscript that treads a very blurry line between historical novel and memoir. The distinctive thing about this project, which will be published in the spring of 2020 as Cuppy and Stew, the bombing of UA 629, is that it is partially a historical novel about my wife's parents, whom I never met, while the memoirist portion, written in the retrospective voice most generally associated with memoir, is not the story of my life, but my wife's. The two parts of the text, 1937 to 1955, the year in which a sociopath named Jack Gilbert Graham put a bomb on UA 629 to kill his mother and killed everyone on the flight, including my wife's parents, and part two, which covers 55 to 59, during which my wife was escaping the foster care system in Vancouver, BC, into whose clutches she had fallen when she was orphaned, are both narrated by the same character, Susan Morgan, which happens to be my wife's name. When I first started working on this somewhat odd project, I did a great deal of research, as I've always done on my books, except it wasn't the life experience research of my imaginary characters, but actual research into my wife's life. We visited Vancouver together and tracked down where her parents had lived in the 30s and 40s. We visited her parents' grave sites, which she hadn't seen since she was 13, the year after they died. We looked for and found the palatial house of her parental grandfather, paternal grandfather, who had disowned her father and refused to meet his orphan grandchildren. And we stood in front of the small cottage where she had lived for two years with her maternal grandmother, who kept all of the food in the house locked up in her closet. Early on, I was convinced this would be a new kind of memoir and told my agent, you know, what a bonanza he was in for. <laughs> he said, don't worry about which shelf in the bookstore it would end up on and simply write. Years later, I've come to think that is very good advice. Just write and see where the life you are transforming takes you. Don't worry about what you're writing or what it's going to be. Just write. You can decide the other stuff later. Later, a novelist friend announced, I couldn't call it a memoir because I'd made up all the dialogue and many of the scenes in the lives of my wife's parents, scenes which my wife couldn't have witnessed since she wasn't born yet. Of course, my friend was right, as friends often are. And as I worked on the project, the material evolved into a narrative in which a surviving daughter narrates first her parents' lives and then her own, looking back at it all, in some instances knowing things she couldn't have known, in others telling her own story in terms as close to the truth of her life, transformed as I could make it based on those extensive interviews with my wife, 
who represses, who represses, I should say, much of what happened to her during that terrible time, so that in a certain way I become the keeper of her memories. A side note about this is that when I was about two years into the project, Susan woke up one morning and said, I have diaries from all the years after my parents died. I said, you do? <laughs> she said, you know what else? I know where they are. <laughs> so we climb up into our attic, and Susan walks straight to the box where those diaries had lain undisturbed for more than 30 years. She dug them out and said, wait, you're not going to use them, are you? I said, are you crazy? Of course I'm going to use them. And for the next year and a half, I was in daily conversation with my wife as the young teenager I'd never known, simultaneously with living with the woman she'd become, looking back with her together. Looking back myself now, I consider that an incredibly romantic period of time for us and transformative not only for the project, but for our lives as a couple. Now, looking back with you, I ask, does that make Cuppy and Stu a memoir? Who knows? My wife, who is also an author and a feminist literary critic, says, that's not me. You made it up. That's just your version of me. Part three transforming life into writing in these dark days. In an age in which there is so much terrible, nearly overwhelming news, climate change, the rise of nationalism, gun violence, how do you write without your work being overwhelmed by those actual, factual life events? I think this is a very hard question and a terrible problem for everyone, but especially young people trying to write today. If, for instance, you are sick with worry about our planet and the coordinated attempts to roll back environmental protection by the industry employees who are now in charge of the EPA, or the daily attacks on our dramatic democratic institutions by the White House, how do you keep your moral outrage from overwhelming what you are trying to write? Or perhaps you're disgusted by the fundamental rights that have been granted to homosexuals and transgendered Americans. I'm an equal opportunity offender here. Please bear with me. Because you believe that the behavior of those people is against God's will, and homosexuality is a choice anyway. How do you keep those beliefs and the desire to see them take hold in the world from overwhelming what you are trying to write about. Well, you can turn off the television, whether you watch Fox News or Rachel Maddow overnight. You can turn it off and pretend you're not alive today. But these are such politicized times. It may not be possible to avoid political topics. That's the world in which we live. And yet, and yet, most people, including some people in this room, probably hate to be preached at, whether they agree with what the preaching is about or whether they disagree. In addition, political diatribe is very close to political drivel. And above all, 
as a rule, it's not very interesting on the page. I don't have an absolute or even a very good answer for this one because it's something I continue to wrestle with. I'm presently writing a sequel to my 1991 novel, In Days of Awe. It's been quite an experience to imagine myself back into the lives of characters nearly 30 years after I left them. In that novel, Jewish Joe Singer, a star pitcher for an unnamed National League team in New York, has been suspended for, from baseball for a year for possibly being involved with gamblers. In his time away from the game and to seek redemption for some of his other sins, Joe becomes a spokesperson for a fictional gun control referendum in California, seeking to ban the sale of assault weapons and to require background checks on gun sales at gun shows. In that campaign, he met and fell in love with Franny, a beach volleyball star with a violent family history. In this new novel, titled Curveball, set in the present day, Joe and Franny's son is on the cusp of reaching the major leagues. But as we all know, gun violence remains an issue in our country. And it is no surprise that the fictional gun control referendum in my first novel about it didn't pass. In fact, gun control laws have become more lax in the 30 years since I was writing in Days of Awe, with many states allowing concealed carry laws, while the sale of assault weapons to private citizens continues unabated. This makes me sick and angry. This made me sick and angry in the late 1980s when I was writing that first novel, and it continues to today. And so, because it's so hard to avoid, I've allowed real political issues to intrude upon and partially animate the fictional lives of my characters. I don't advise this, I don't defend it, but if you're going to do something similar, I advise working in these real life issues into what you're writing through the concerns of a character very much not yourself. And I advise you to do your research because you will be attacked if you don't. And I advise you to do your research so that the scenes you animate have the heft and weight of life transformed. Much as Garcia Marquez said, you can make anything real if you believe in it. And so, with your indulgence, for which I very much thank all of you, I'm going to close with a very short section from Curveball. Less than an hour after she'd left Joe at the restaurant, Franny stood outside police barricades, surrounded by nervous, tearful, in some cases hysterical, in others still holding it together, friends and parents of students inside the lockdown high school. She probably shouldn't have come. Of course she shouldn't have come. What was the point? But from the moment she started toward their rental car in Florida and climbed in, she knew where she was headed as if she were six foot one inches 
of iron filings pulled towards true north. But that wasn't completely true, was it? And she very much wanted to be truthful, at least to herself. She'd punched the school's address into the rental car's GPS, so she couldn't claim she'd come against her will. Now could she? Some of the parents near her, barely keeping it together, were texting with students inside the building. Others, like the couple beside her, hadn't received calls or texts, and Lord knew what that meant, although they certainly knew what it could mean. She knew how she'd feel if Jess were in there. Lord, why had she come? Why had she? She remembered the shooting 25 years ago at the rally at which Joe was speaking at Carmel. This is from the novel. Two dead, Joe wounded, and how, incredibly, less than a month later, the gun control referendum they'd been working for didn't pass. What, she wondered, was wrong with everyone? Franny looked around at the faces surrounding her, which showed hope mixed with fear and grief and a despair she couldn't imagine to lose a child. She felt control slipping, slipping, and reminded herself she had no right to feel this way. She had no cause. She'd put all that behind her, her anger and grief. She had worked all these years not to let what had happened define her. No, she reminded herself she wasn't her father's daughter anymore. She was Joe Singer's lover, then wife, Jess's mommy, then his mom and mother, now his biggest supporter and number one fan. Students began to emerge from the high school on the other side of the underpass from where friends and family had been made to wait. A sigh went up, a group lamentation. Many of the boys wore shorts and t-shirts, Florida garb, the girls, too, so much beautiful and vulnerable adolescent flesh exposed to the late afternoon sun, students walking in enforced single file, hands above their heads. And this is what Franny would see that night and for days afterwards when she'd close her eyes. Each set of hands set on the shoulders in front of them, a daisy chain of victimhood herded by armed police like prisoners away from the school and across the street and under the overpass toward the crowd of parents and friends searching the lines of the living for the missing and dead. Thank you. <laughs>